what is science and what is religion. Both are attempts to try to find the truth about our physical reality and what is inside or outside of that reality and right. what the rules are. In the simulation hypothesis, what science is actually discovering is what we in the video game world would call a physics engine. simulation hypothesis as a model that we live in an information-based reality that's being rendered for each of us may end up coming closer to explaining these things than a lot of other models that are out there. Hey there, I'm Derek Bernard, producer of the Hacker Noon podcast. Today I sit down with Hacker Noon contributing author Riz Vert to discuss his recently published book, The Simulation Hypothesis. In a world where the nature of our being in this place we call reality is so often taken for granted amidst the need to sustain the status quo, Riz explores the very real possibility and in some schools of thought the very real probability that what we experience as real is in fact a simulation akin to a video game with its quests, achievements, and leveling up through our experiences. One last thing. Hacker Noon's first annual Noonie Awards is open and awaiting your votes, and the last day to submit yours is August 20th. Lots of great categories to vote on at noonies.hackernoon.com. Riz starts us off here. Check it out. Hacker Noon, an independent tech media destination for tech professionals and the tech interested, released its new publishing platform at hackernoon.com. Anyone can now visit hackernoon.com, start writing, and have their post reviewed and improved by a professional editor for distribution via Hacker Noon. Head over to hackernoon.com, resist the urge to dive into all the great content, then click Get Started to create a free account and start writing. You're just a few clicks away from becoming a contributing author. See you soon at hackernoon.com. I mean, that's one of the real big mysteries in, in quantum physics, you know, which is this idea of quantum entanglement, this idea that two particles can be entangled so that whatever affects one affects the other. And despite where you are in the universe, you can theoretically have information about what's going on in the other place. You know, Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. Right. Uh, and no one really knows why it occurs. But there was a, a set of experiments done recently by a group of physicists where they simulated a scaled-down version of the universe. And they found that by entangling certain particles, uh, they could reduce the amount of information that they needed uh, you know, to keep track of all of space-time. So it's possible that quantum entanglement uh, is a way of maintaining information in the universe. Now, I'm a video game designer. And so, you know, I look at it and say, well, it could very much be an optimization technique. Uh, and the history of video games uh, is about optimization. I mean, if you looked at video games in the 80s, and uh, there was no way they could render a full 3D world like World of Warcraft or Fortnite, they just wouldn't have enough processing power to handle all those pixels. So what happened between then and now? What happened is that many computer scientists came up with um, these optimization techniques and rendering techniques uh, and compression techniques. I mean, the reason I can stream Game of Thrones on my iPod or my iPad is because not all the pixels have to be sent uh, over the air. So what happens is when you compress uh, information, you take all the redundant 
information and you reduce it. So in a scene of winter, you know, all the pixels that are white, they all pretty much have the same value, right? Well, you know, the simulation hypothesis would say that the uh, uh, quantum uh, entanglement is an optimization technique to reduce the amount of information and data uh, that we need to have uh, in order to render the physical world. Uh, and there have been, you know, some science physicists like um, uh, Jim Gates, who's I think at the University of Maryland, who's a string theorist, and he says he's found error correction codes, you know, uh, in the underlying equations in, in string theory. Now, why would there be error codes underlying physical reality? Well, we use error codes all the time in computer science and in video games. We use them when we compress data. And then when we uncompress data, we want to make sure we got the same information and so we can use error correction codes. Um, so that you know, all ties to this idea that some of the biggest mysteries, that being one of them, uh, make more sense when we think of the world as a simulated reality and less uh, as a physical reality. And so let me see if I get it straight. So the universe is like 14 billion years old, they say. Right. And it, it all came from a kind of bang of some kind, potentially. Right. And then so in the in the in that time from the inception until now, all of those billions of years, evolution has happened probably multiple times, many, many times across many, many epochs, I would imagine, where civilization evolves to a point where they can duplicate a reality so precisely that it would feel like the real thing. That's right. And in fact, one of the reasons why uh, this idea is taken more seriously now. So if you go back to when The Matrix came out, which was you know, almost exactly 20 years ago, so I released you know, my book, The Simulation Hypothesis, on the 20-year anniversary of the release of The Matrix on March 31st. Mm -hmm. 2019 versus 1999 is when The Matrix was released. So back then, it was pretty much considered science fiction uh, or philosophy. And today, many scientists and academics take it more seriously. And one of the reasons why is there's a a uh, professor at Oxford named Nick Bostrom, and he came up with this, uh, a paper in 2003 that says, are you living in a computer simulation? And his argument pretty much says that if any civilization anywhere gets to what I call the simulation point, the point at which we can reproduce a reality that is indistinguishable from physical reality, and, and I'll tell you later why I think we're going to be there soon anyway. Uh, his point was either civilization never gets there or it gets there, and if it gets there, then they can create many new simulations. All you need to do is just crank up a new server. An infinite like, number even. An infinite number. And each of those can have billions, if not trillions of beings. So depending on the computing power, right? Um, and I think, you know, he estimated that you would need the computing power. If you had the computing power of a whole planet, uh, you could simulate the entire history of the human race uh, you know, within, I forget what the time frame was, but it wasn't very long <laughs> hmm. with that much computing power. Um, and, but, but the idea is that if that's true, then there are many more simulated beings than there are real physical beings, right? Mm -hmm. There's trillions and trillions of them. And in the physical universe, there might only be billions of them, right? On, you know, sort of one physical universe, if you will, or trillions, mm -hmm. but right. we don't necessarily, although this is up for debate as well, <laughs> but uh, within the base physical reality, there's a lot less beings than there are simulated beings. And so if you just do a simple statistic and you say, okay, if you're a being, right, which we are, uh, we think we are anyway, right. uh, are, you're more likely to be a simulated being uh, than a physical being. A non-player character. 
Exactly, a non-player character. And so what most people don't realize is there's two versions of the simulation hypothesis. I mean, there's actually more than two, but I, I like to divide it in these two broad categories. And again, coming from the world of video games. So the NPC version, which says that we're all like non-player characters in video games. And that is what's implied in Bostrom's simulation argument. Uh, because if you're just spinning up a new server with a trillion new beings, they're all just information and they're just simulated beings. So we're all NPCs or AI. In the other version, the PC, the player character version, we all exist, or at least some subset of us, exist outside the simulation. Just as when, when I play a character in World of Warcraft, I exist in this biological reality, but I have my character that I'm role-playing inside the, the 3D virtual world. Um, and so that's more like the Matrix, right? So if you remember in the Matrix, when Keanu Reeves' character Neo you know, gets the choice from Morpheus, who is very aptly named after the Greek god of dreams, of taking the red pill and the blue pill and the very famous scene. Even people that haven't seen the movie know the scene now. <laughs> and he takes the red pill and he wakes up outside of the simulated reality. And in this case, he wakes up in a pod. <laughs> and right. you know, there's a whole nother backstory there, which brings up this question of what's outside the simulation. But, but those are the two broad categories of, of the simulation. So I guess, and, and you say two broad categories, does that mean it has to be either or? It well, can't be no, both simultaneously, or it could be both. Uh, and so, you know, there's an overlap there because in the player character version, there are definitely going to be some NPCs as well, right? Has to be. Uh, so, and if you're an NPC uh, in one reality, then who's the player character? Right. And so, you know, recently there was a big gaming conference in LA, E3, and you know, Elon Musk was there, and he's one of the the big proponents of the simulation theory. And, and he, you know, he asked the question when he was asked about this, he said, well, whose avatar are you? Right. Uh, and the idea is that our simulated reality has very, has great graphics. Um, we don't all like the storyline that we're given. Right. Right. And so one of the objections I get from people is say, well, if this was a simulated reality, this is a video game, I'd make myself, you know, a trillionaire and I have this great life. And, right. um, and I would say to that, well, you know, why is it that we play video games in the first place? Right. We play video games to have experiences that we might not be able to have in our base reality. It's a kind of escape. It's a kind of escape, right? I mean, I can't fly a dragon, right, in real life. Totally. Right? Or shoot so it's a call course. to adventure <laughs> also. Yeah, that's right. So it's a call to adventure. But then there are games like Second Life and The Sims where you're just living out a virtual life, getting married, you're doing all kinds of things. Uh, and so, you know, you have to understand the nature of the game. In fact, let's go back to science fiction. I always like to do that because I think, you know, it's hard to talk about this topic without talking about some science totally. fiction. Yeah. But in The Matrix, if you remember, in the sequels, which you know, were not as well-received as... The yeah, original. they were just all right. Yeah. Uh, well, they, had some, they touched on some pretty cool themes, but I think they missed the mark for the most part. So. Yeah, in terms of just fun movies to watch. But one of the revelations that came out, um, and I had to go back and rewatch this, was that... They said that in their first version of the Matrix they created, everything was great. There were no problems. Right. And that the human mind failed to accept that as a reality. And so the people kept waking up in their pods. And so when they introduced some element of challenges or even drudgery uh, into you know, the virtual lives of the characters, the human mind accepted it more. And so, you know, again, it gets back to this idea, uh, you know, we talked about adventures. Indiana Jones is one of my favorite uh, you know, sets of adventure movies. And Mine what if too. he was just given a map to the treasure at the beginning and all you had to do was go get it? Well, that, 
that would make for a very boring movie, right? Totally. <laughs> there yeah. have to be some challenges along the way. And I, I think that's, you know, part of the game itself. And so it depends on what type of game it is, really, I think. And then, you know, it seems to tie in definitely into spirituality or because, I mean, you know, I think about the simulated reality and then uh, uh, immediately I go, well, how does how would one hack the system? And it seems like if you look at, say, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, he seems to give you the instruction manual right there, you know. That's right. And and I think the simulation hypothesis is one that's very consistent uh, with various religious traditions, particularly the Eastern traditions of Buddhism and Hinduism. And, you know, part of the core tenets uh, there is that we have maya or illusion around us. Uh, you know, Buddha himself said, you know, know all things to be like this, a mirage, right? That they are like reflections in a very clear mirror, devoid of inherent existence, hmm. right? And that some people get to the point of peeking outside the simulation and telling us what's there. Uh, and so it, it, it's almost tailor-made. And then, you know, in the Eastern traditions, you have this idea of reincarnation and karma. And so you come back and you play different roles. Uh, and the way that that works, and it's symbolized by Buddha's endless wheel of wandering or samsara, as they call it, is that every time you, you play a character, you have certain tasks that have to be done, which is just like a video game. Right? You totally. have quests and achievements. But what's interesting is that this is almost a never-ending stream of quests. So as you play the game, you create additional quests and achievements for yourself, which you then have to take care of uh, in your karmic debts in future role-playing characters. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea is that eventually you can get off and stop playing the game at some point, but only when you stop creating more things for yourself right. to do in this game. Um, so in, in the Eastern traditions, there's almost a, a very good fit. In fact, in the, in the Hindu Vedas, uh, you know, which date back 5,000 years or more, nobody knows the exact date. Right. They talk about the Leela, uh, which is uh, the grand play uh, like a stage play sure. of life. Uh, and they talk about uh, dreams and, and, you know, the God Vishnu is dreaming this reality as one age and we're all inside of it. But today, you know, if we were to come up with a metaphor, we might not say stage play. That's what Shakespeare said, right? Uh, you know, all life's a stage and we're merely players, but we might say, well, it's an interactive play. Mm -hmm. It's one where we have some free will and we can change things. Man, we may have to live with our consequences. Well, that sounds a lot more like an interactive video game, you know, than, than a scripted play uh, yeah. that might be there. And so I think from a spiritual perspective, uh, you know, they've been seeking truth for thousands of years. And then, you know, science has been around for a few hundred years. And uh, we've been looking, uh, you know, in that realm for what is the truth of existence. And every time physicists, uh, physicists have tried to come up with a, a material reality and they look at it and they open it up and they can't find the damn thing. Right? They can't find where is physical reality, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we know, you know, molecules have atoms, but molecules have spaces in between them. And then you open up the atom and it's like 99.99%, maybe even more nines than that, empty space, right? Infinite. And then, then you go down to the subatomic particles and you look for the electrons and they're not really there. And so, it seems that with physics as well, they can't find a physical reality. And there's a great quote from a, a well-known physicist from the 20th century named John Wheeler. He was one of the, the last to work with Einstein and many of the giants of quantum physics. And you know, he said that in his lifetime, and I think he passed away, I think it was in the 90s, or it wasn't that long ago, 
so he saw much of the 20th century evolution of physics. And he said, physics went through three phases. You know, in the first phase, uh, they thought everything was a particle, you know, which ties to this idea of material reality, that everything is a physical object. Uh, then he said, we thought everything was a field, a uh, field of probabilities. And that's where quantum physics comes into play. And this idea that an electron is not just a particle, but it's a wave of possibilities and probabilities. We can talk more about that in a minute. And he goes in this third phase, you know, he realized that at its core, everything is actually information. That when you get right down to it, this idea of a bit, and I don't think he lived long enough to see quantum computing really come into its own, which it is in, in this decade, uh, and hopefully the next decade, but you know, this idea of a qubit, which is a, a bit that can be both zero and one, has come into play. So anyway, he came up with a phrase, uh, which, which he mentioned in his autobiography, of it from bit, you know, it being the physical world and bit being the information of zero or one. He said everything in the physical world actually is consists of information. And so, you know, we keep having this idea that you have information and then you have mathematical rules that, that the world follows. That sounds a lot more like a computer generated reality than a physical reality. Hmm. And it seems like, I just I always come back to, it seems like all of that and the information, this is kind of where I got stuck actually with the whole hypothesis is you talk about downloading consciousness into a system and then living on forever in, in the form of information, right? And to me, it seems like, well, how do you download consciousness? And once you've, once you've translated that consciousness into information, it becomes soulless, right? You can't break information's heart, you know? <laughs> so, it's, so it's like, how does one exist as human in a place like that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, this gets to some fundamental questions of, you know, what does it mean to be human? Uh, and, you know, coming back to science fiction, this is a theme that was explored by Philip K. Dick in a lot of his work, um, you know, Blade Runner, the movie which is based on his novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, came to this question of, you know, what is human? You know, are, are the androids alive and and i'm you know a big fan of star trek the next generation uh which i watched growing up and they always had that question with data who was an android but a member of the crew was he just property of starfleet or was he a being as captain picard argued uh in his own right who has his own rights and it's a question that we're going to have to struggle with you know here in our physical reality as well hmm. pretty soon because ai is becoming pretty good so one of the things that I, I, I do in the book, about a third of the book is dedicated to the computer science, and I lay out what I call the stages uh, to the simulation point. Uh, and those stages start with video games, basic text adventures, and then graphical adventures, and then 3D adventures. And you get to virtual reality and augmented reality, which is you know where we are today. Uh, and then they go into machine uh, uh, and brain interfaces, kind of like in the matrix where when Keanu Reeves woke up, he had a physical wire connected you know, right. into his uh, neocortex, right? It's probably why they call it Neo. <laughs> uh, but it, you know, that's where the information was beamed into, but he still existed outside the information. And then AI that can pass the Turing test, which you know, Alan Turing defined, he called it the imitation game, uh, which was this idea that you would be talking to a person and a, and a machine behind the curtains. Uh, and back in those days, he said you would use teletype <laughs> to send messages. Today, we might say you use you know, text messages or just voice messages. Uh, and he said, if you can't tell the difference between the, the machine, uh, today we would say the AI, the software, but back then they thought of it as a machine and the person, then that would pass you know, that particular version of the drink test. We're not there yet, mm -hmm. but we're getting there. 
Uh, and you know, my estimate is that with by 2100, you know, we'll be through most of the stages of the simulation point. Even if we're off by 100 years, certainly by 2200. Yeah. Uh, which means if we can get there in really computers have only been around since the 1950s, that would be, you know, what 150 to 250 years. Think of a civilization that was, you know, millions of years ahead of us and has had computers for 10,000 years. What could they have achieved in that time frame? Totally. Uh, and so getting to that, I mean, I didn't really answer your question about the information and the solace, but, but I think it, it, it's a question that, you know, we're, we're going to have to struggle with. Now, mm-hmm. the question is, uh, you know, is there a soul that comes in and inhabits our body, which is what the religions have been telling us all along. Uh, and if so, what is that, that information? And this is where, if you look at, uh, the, again, back to the Eastern traditions, and we can talk about the Western religious traditions as well, but in Hinduism, Buddhism, there's actually a little bit of a debate. So in Hinduism, there's this idea of an eternal soul that comes in, plays a role in a body, and goes to the next one, etc. And it exists outside as an independent entity. In the Buddhist version, what is this thing that reincarnates? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it that gets downloaded? And you know, there's as far as God is concerned, Buddhism. Buddha never said anything about it. He kind of said, "Oh, I'm not talking about that. I'm just telling you about the mechanism." Yeah. Uh, but he said that what gets downloaded is actually more like a bag of karma. So, what's a bag of karma? Getting a collection to- of algorithms, almost exactly a collection of information and algorithms mm. for processing that information. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the sections in the book is called "Is Buddha's Endless Wheel an Algorithm?" Right? Uh, do you really need the Lords of Karma? Um, now coming back, but wait, but wait. So the karma that would tr- it transforms a something. It transforms a being, right? All of those, all of that information that gets downloaded into this is there's something that occurs to it, right? And grows it, changes it into whatever, releases its karma into a dharmic state or something. Right, and the idea is that you know, if if you think of karma, and this is you know my contention with the video game analogy, as a series of quests and achievements. Uh, I mean, we think of karma in the West as okay, you know, person A killed person B in one lifetime, therefore, you know, what comes around goes around, and person right. B to kill person A. It's a little more subtle than that. It's more. Yeah, about I don't see it that way. Right. Yeah, and and so people that have studied it, you know, understand that it's more about uh, specific. Uh, feelings and emotions and and as well as events that have happened and that those events need to kind of resolve themselves. And so, you know, if you think of it like a, a computer algorithm, you have a stack of things that's getting added on and then eventually you want to empty the stack, right? You want to take those things off. Uh, and those are the those are the things that are used metaphorically now by the lords of karma to create situations for us. That's the never-ending cycle. Right, could be a never-ending cycle. And but the idea within the Eastern religions is to try to wake up to that. In fact, there's a whole uh, sect of Buddhist dream yoga, uh, which talks about learning to wake up inside a dream and realize that the dream is an illusion. And if you develop that process, it's one of the, the six yogas of Naropa, which is preserved in one of the Tibetan traditions, that if you can do it while you're dreaming, then you can also, when you're awake, realize that all of this is like a shared dream. It's like yeah. a reality constructed from a dream world and that there's a part of us, uh, something about us that's, that's outside this reality and that we can get back in touch with that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, one of the reasons that I like simulation hypothesis is because it bridges the gap between religion and science. 
I mean, what happened like 500 years ago, you know, with Galileo and the church, right? In the Western traditions, you know, the, the, the church was trying to suppress science in many ways. And so many scientists became afraid of that. Uh, then we had, you know, the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and all of these things. And today we're almost at the point where the opposite is true, where the scientists are saying, forget religion, that stuff is a bunch of crap, right? We know it's a physical world and this is a material model and we're studying the equations and none of that stuff, you know, is true. And if you talk about it, well, then you can't, you know, be taken seriously. You can't get to right. the academic environment, right? So it's almost like flipped, right? This, yeah, it's uh, like the religious the religious lens is uh, is in the way of science in a way. Right, but if you think of it at their core, what are what is science and what is religion? Both are attempts to try to find the truth about our physical reality mm -hmm. uh, and what is inside or outside of that reality and right. what the rules are, right? In the simulation hypothesis, uh, what science is actually discovering is what we in the video game world would call a physics engine, right? <laughs> uh, which are the rules that, that are followed by everything within a video game, and there's precise mathematical rules in a physics engine. But within a video game, you can also, if you've played like Second Life or, or various virtual reality games, you, know, you can walk from point A to point B, or you can teleport <laughs> from point A to point B. You can instantly go from one place to another. And so, you know, there, there's been a lot of theorizing about wormholes and ways to teleport you know, across space-time, and we're still discovering the rules of that. Uh, but, you know, I think it's possible that we've discovered only 5% of the rules of the physical universe. Certainly, we've only discovered, I think, something like 4% of the, the mass of the universe. The rest, they just lump under dark matter and dark energy. And, yeah, we don't really know what those things are. Right? Yeah, there's, the, there's kind of this question of we don't know what we don't know. And I wonder, you know, it seems like we're, we'd be just completely blown away if we actually discovered what we didn't know. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, could could they have imagined, you know, 200 years ago, uh, you know, some of the uh, the weirdness of, of quantum physics? And so the other big question in quantum physics is quantum indeterminacy, uh, which and superposition, which is this idea that uh, there's a probability wave of where a particle could be, uh, and then that collapses to a single reality when it's observed. Just the double slit. Yeah, the most famous uh, version of this is the double slit experiment where a particle can only go through one of these two slits, right? It has to go here to point A or, or to point B. But a wave, you know, is a set of probabilities. And so the particle goes through all of those, whether it's a photon or an electron, and it appears as an interference pattern on the screen beyond the slits. Uh, probably an easy way to understand it for most people is Schrodinger's cat, right? And, That's an easy yeah, way to understand it? Yeah, easier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I think uh, Niels Bohr said, you know, uh, if someone isn't shocked by quantum physics, then they haven't really understood it, right? Ain't <laughs> uh, that the truth? Yeah, exactly. It just seems nonsensical. But the idea with Schrodinger's cat is that you have a cat inside a box with a radioactive um, material, and after an hour, there's a 50% chance the cat is alive and 50% chance the cat is dead. Now, we would say, and it makes total common sense to us, that the cat is either alive or dead. Mm -hmm. I just don't know because I haven't looked. Mm -hmm. But it can't be both. It's, it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. Quantum physics says no, it's in a state of superposition which is that it's both alive and dead, and it's not until we actually observe it that one of those realities, the probability wave, collapses, and one of those realities takes shape. Now, that's kind of weird, right, to say that both of those exist. And, it's godlike, you know, if you think about it, right. in, its, in its essence. 
And it's because you created your reality just by observing it. Right. And did you create your reality? This is an interesting question, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then some people have done gyrations and come up with this idea of, well, there's parallel universes. In one universe, the cat is alive. In one universe, the cat is dead. Well, that gets to infinite sets of parallel universes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's this idea of the delayed choice double slit experiment. The point there is after the particle goes through slit A or slit B, it does something else. Uh, and you would say, well, if it ends up over here, like two steps down the road, let's say the cat goes outside <laughs> and uh, goes for a walk versus the cat goes to the kitchen. Um, and obviously it can only do th that choice if it's still alive and not dead. But the idea is only when somebody observes that, that subsequent step does the whole path come into existence. Mm. And they actually tested this, uh, some uh, physicists in Italy, where uh, the particles went through the double slits, and then they went to a satellite, like, I don't know, a thousand miles away or something, which takes, you know, a few uh, nanoseconds or milliseconds at the speed of light. And so it wasn't until somebody observed the particle there that it collapsed to go through one slit or the other as opposed to being a wave. And so mm -hmm. uh, now this, a lot of this reminded me of video games. So earlier I said, Quantum entanglement is an optimization or compression technique. Well, quantum indeterminacy is just like why we are able to render a fully 3D world like World of Warcraft on my laptop or even Fortnite on my phone now because the, the 3D modeling techniques, they all rely on this cardinal rule, which is you only need to render the pixels that are visible. Right in front right? of your face, essentially. Right, right in front of your face. And if mm -hmm. you turn that way and that way, yeah, you can cache some of the pixels that are around you so yeah. they render them quickly. And so that's a rendering engine that we have, which takes the mathematical information, uh, but each of us has our own rendering engine. So if you and I are playing a game and our avatars are in the same scene, say in World of Warcraft, well, I'm rendering it on my computer and you're rendering it on your computer. And so there's this possibility that we, we, what we're seeing may not be the exact same scene. Uh, this is a trick we use. I think that's, I think that's, you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you bring that up and it's like, cause I, in my mind, I see that's exactly what's, what we're doing here on zoom, right? We're having our avatars <laughs> are actually speaking to each other to a certain extent. Right. And it's being rendered where the camera can see and it's limiting the pixels and it's compressing, you know, behind me, there's a wall that's pretty much the same color, right? So it's compressing the pixels and sending them over. It, yeah. And individually, we have our own processors and, and I lost my train of thought. Yeah. But, but that ties very much to this idea that uh, our consciousness, uh, you know, may not be seeing the exact same thing that we may be conscious. Of that's what it is. That are so, rendering different things. So as okay. we do this in video games all the time, where if you're a level 30 character mm -hmm. and I'm a level two character, mm -hmm. uh, I may not see everything in the scene. Uh, and the server kind of says, well, that's he's level 30. Let's show him this hidden object, right? Right. <laughs> level two, you don't see it, right? And, and I don't know that what I'm seeing is different from what you're seeing. Uh, and they, there was actually a set of experiments that was done recently. It was proposed by a, a Nobel Prize winning physicist in the 60s named Eugene Wigner. And uh, a lot of these experiments, like the delayed choice, like which was proposed by John Wheeler, were all theoretical until the 70s or 80s or 90s and some till you know, the teens of, of this century. Uh, and this one, they were just able to do it now. And the idea was there was Wigner and Wigner's friend. And he said, well, if we're looking at a set of particles and Wigner looks at it, and sees that it collapsed a certain way, but he doesn't tell anybody. And Wigner's friend looks at it before he knows what Wigner observed. 
will he see something different? Like, will the cat be alive versus dead? Mm. They just did this experiment, I think, in England with, with five or six sets of entangled particles. It was the first time they could do it. And they found that, in fact, it was possible for the collapse of the particles to happen slightly differently. Uh, and so that raises the possibility, just like in video games, that there is no shared rendering of the reality that it's mm. being rendered by each of us as we observe it. And then as more people observe it, it becomes more and more solid, which now we're, we're in the realm of metaphysics, right? <laughs> we're outside yeah. of physics. We're back to this idea that the world is an illusion or a shared dream and we're all dreaming it ourselves. Yeah. And it is and it isn't that. kind of at the same time, right? I mean, I guess in my mind, there's this mind. Ma- I, I immediately think of Jito Krishnamurti. Have you read any of him? A little bit. A little so bit. in it, he talks about there's a where we have relationships with each other, but we're not actually having relationships with each other. We're actually having relationships with our mental image of each other, our mental right. projection of each other, and our mental interpretation of each other. And then we yeah. don't actually commune right. somehow. That's right. It's kind of like we're you know having looking at each other's avatars, which are being rendered in our minds right. <laughs> on our personal computer screen, right? Which really would be our consciousness. Uh, and, and so consciousness is a big area and it's a big area of debate. I mean, a lot of scientists say either one, ignore it because it's subjective and therefore we can't talk about it in science. The problem mm. is in quantum physics, there's no longer a sense of objective versus subjective. Again, getting back to John Wheeler, he said, you know, we think of science as, okay, you're the scientist outside 20 feet of plate glass watching the experiment and not right. and He says that, that quantum physics blows that whole notion out of the water. You are a participant in the experiment simply by observing it. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to be completely separate, you know, from the experiment. So, uh, so scientists have either written it off or... What's become more popular recently in Silicon Valley, right, we're both here in the Bay Area, uh, is this idea that, well, consciousness is really just a matter of modeling all of the neurons in the brain. And, and so if we're able to do that, and we're not able to do that yet because there are so many neurons and you can't just model the neurons, you have to model the connections, right, mm-hmm. and how they fire. So that's a tremendous amount of data. But there are, there are groups that have simulated all the neurons in a rat's brain, for example, uh, and, uh, you know, eventually I think that the number ends up being 10 to the 39, if you count all of the human neurons and all of the connections that if you can just copy that, then you have basically a copy of that person's consciousness. Yeah. But it's and, a copy copy, right? It's not, <laughs> well, you there know, you go. at the beginning yeah. of this uh, podcast, you, you talked about quantum teleportation, mm-hmm. which has been in the news a little bit lately where a Chinese team said they were able to teleport a quantum particle from here up to a satellite without having to go the interview. Okay. Yeah, I think I saw that. Turns out what they really did was they sent a copy of the information. Hmm. They didn't actually send the physical particle. It was this quantum state that they copied. Now, if all a particle is is a quantum state, then maybe they did accomplish teleportation of a type, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like taking the information in an avatar, de-rendering them from one, one place, uh, to another and re-rendering them somewhere else. With fast the travel. Picture. Fast travel. And there's a great uh, science fiction uh, set of books uh, and and uh, show on Netflix called Altered Carbon. I don't know if you've seen Saw that. It. Yep. Right? And so there they have this idea of a cortical stack uh, getting back to the... <laughs> yeah. Where the Neo's connection uh, was mm-hmm. in the Matrix uh, that, that they put in and that all your information of your consciousness is there. But that's how they travel between planets because it would take too long and be too slow. So they just beam your information to another body 
uh, into the stack. Now, when you when you look at and say, well, how did he explain how that's done? Turns out they discovered it from some alien <laughs> technology. Right, it's always, <laughs> and they don't really know how it's done. But that that's you know a great device that they're able to use to be in different bodies. And but people in Silicon Valley are taking it seriously, uh, saying you know digital immortality. Uh, Ray Kurzweil and others believe by sign me up. To, by 2049, we'll be able to beam ourselves down hmm. into a silicon device. Uh, and then if that's true, then really our consciousness is information. Now, I think there's an open question whether that's really you or a copy of you. Just like with the quantum teleportation, it's a copy of the information. Just like in biology, we have copies too. They're called clones mm-hmm. uh, or even identical twins, right? They're genetic copies of the, 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 uh, you know, the, the genome in this case. But anyone who's known twins knows that they're not the same person. Right. They may have many similar experiences and shared experiences. They tend to have slightly different personalities. In some cases, they're wildly different personalities. You know, right. an extrovert. Uh, and so you know, that gets back to the question of what makes us who we are? Uh, and is it just this information uh, that can be copied? Or is it you know, sort of more of an indestructible soul? And right, and that that's that's an open question. Indestructible, non-translatable essence of being. Uh, that's right. And now, I, you know, I personally think that downloadable consciousness may be possible. And I've spent a lot of time studying the Eastern traditions, uh, and turns out they had this idea of downloading consciousness uh, at birth. You download into the body, and at death, you upload back to the cloud, whatever right, the cloud right. happens to be. But more than that, I, I mentioned the six yogas of Naropa earlier. One of them was dream yoga. turns out there was a secret seventh yoga, uh, which was a forceful projection of consciousness out of the mind to another entity. Mm-hmm. And so what would happen is uh, they kept it secret for obvious reasons, but they said you could project to another biological being. And there was a famous story about... Uh, uh, a, a, a yogi named Marpa who taught it to his son and his son ended up, uh, his horse ended up, you know, tripping and he was about to break his neck. So he transferred his consciousness out of his body to a pigeon that was flying in the Himalayas and that pigeon flew to India. And then he transferred his consciousness to a recently deceased young, young man's body, mm-hmm. which he then, you know, woke up in and then started to proceed to teach yoga. And then years later, another disciple of his father, Marpa, who was called Milarepa, Tibet's most famous yogi, uh, wanted to teach someone about this. He said, why don't you go study with this guy, Tipupa, which means the pigeon saint, <laughs> nah. all about it in India. So he would send his students over there. Uh, now, you know, is that a story? Did that really happen? According to these traditions, it did, but they have this idea that consciousness can be transferred already, but it needs to have a biological host, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where the difference, I think, comes in. And even in some of our science fiction, there's a great TV show called Fringe from a few years ago. I, don't know if yeah, I didn't see that one. Okay, but uh, you know, they had parallel universes. But at one point, uh, you know, Leonard Nimoy played a character named William Bell. And you know, he was going to die and his consciousness was going to be transferred out. So they said, let's transfer it to this device. Turns out that didn't work, but what did work was he was able to transfer it into uh, the main character, uh, who was a woman, right? So she, huh. you know, started acting like like Leonard Nimoy's character, William Bell, and so it was almost like it needed a biological host. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I have a feeling that that there may be more complexities to hosting consciousness than what we think. But yeah. In the end, even biology, most of what we take as biology, you know, uh, in the genome was was theorized before it was actually found as physical, gets down to information. What is DNA? 
but a really efficient mechanism for storing all this information uh, about you know how the the body should develop. Um, and there's even evidence that that information can be modified, just like in a computer. And so, uh, biological processes happen over time. Uh, they may be fractal-like properties. Like there's a great video, getting back to video games. A great video game called uh, No Man's Sky, which uh, came out and actually. People uh, liked the idea of the game more than the game itself, but in it, they had 18 quintillion planets. Right. Why 18 quintillion? Well, it turns out that's the uh, amount of uh, number, the largest number you can have with 64 bits <laughs> if they're unsigned. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but each of those planets had its own you know, flora and fauna and trees and all of these things and landscape. Well, the, the team at the company did not generate, you know, <laughs> 3D models for 18 quintillion planets, they'd still be at it, right, for many years if they had to be right. there. But it's procedurally generated following algorithms. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of clues in nature that, uh, you know, if we want to reproduce what a leaf looks like or what lightning looks like, you follow these kind of fractal algorithms mm-hmm. and it produces much more lifelike, um, you know, images within video games. And, and there, there seems to be evidence that those are the type of algorithms that a lot of what we call biology follows. And so now, again, we start to open up and say, well, where's the physical world? It's really a set of information, DNA, and a set of algorithms that are used to generate proteins and to generate cells and all of these things. So it comes back to this idea that, you know, when we say, you know, some people react to this idea and they're like, no way, you know, I'm not some damn Mario Brothers <laughs> character in a video game. But uh, what I call the great simulation, which would be our reality, would be to today's video games what World of Warcraft and Fortnite and Counter Strike Go are to Pac-Man, right? Got it. Yeah, it's yeah, on yeah. a whole different level. Orders of magnitude. Right? Orders of magnitude, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, with the way that uh, technology is improving, in fact, one of the reasons I, I decided to write the book was a couple of years ago. I was playing a virtual reality game. I tried it on with VR glasses. That was a ping pong game. And I, I started to play, and it just felt so real. Like I was playing an actual ping pong game. The uh, uh, physics engine was so good that it felt like I was actually hitting a ball. It was mm. so realistic, even though the, the 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 resolution of the opponent was it wasn't like a real person. It was like kind of a uh, you know blocky character. But it, the responsiveness was so real that by the end of it, I felt like I had played a real game of table tennis. So I set the paddle down on the table <laughs> and I leaned against the table, which is something I might do. But of course there was no table and right. the paddle fell, which was the controller of the, of the virtual reality, uh, the VR controller, it fell to the floor and I almost fell over mm-hmm. and I had to remind myself. And, and so if you look at how the technology is improving, in fact, that's the argument that Elon Musk made a few years ago at the code conference. Uh, which got a lot of attention was he said 40 years ago we had pong which was two squares and a dot again we have ping pong coming up right <laughs> the vr game i saw was the, sort of the modern version of that yeah but, but then we have 3d virtual worlds with millions of players online what will happen in another 100 years what will happen in another thousand years and so the way things are going it's no longer about pixel resolution i mean the resolution is very good if you watch a, a movie like Blade Runner 2049 or Star Wars, the special effects generally blend pretty nicely. So the pixel resolution is there. What's not there is the rendering technology. Like for a movie, you can render all the frames once and then you just transmit the pixels and display them. But in a virtual reality game, you know, the reason you need processing power is you have to render it as you move around. Right. So, so it's the rendering and the responsiveness you know, that uh, of our reactions and then the interface into the brain like in the matrix, 
uh, that that we would need to be able to build something like the matrix. Right. And that we would even do that, you know, that I guess I get stuck there a little bit. And why would we do that? Why, you know, it, it, uh, like if I were to look at what we were doing now and say we are heading in the direction of even if we aren't in a simulated reality right now hmm. and we're headed in the direction of simulating a reality, why would we do it? Why wouldn't we just figure out life here and now? Well, you know, why, why do we play, you know, civilization or these other games, uh, you know, uh, Oxford's Bostrom calls them ancestor simulations, where we want to go back and see, you know, what might happen to a particular civilization, uh, mm. will it develop along a certain way? So this gets back to this issue of, you know, why would we do a simulation? And if we're inside one, why would the people outside the simulation be doing it? And it gets back to why we play video games. And why do we do simulations in general? So a lot of scientists will simulate uh, a process so that they can see what will happen. Uh, and they'll do Monte Carlo simulations of all these different options to figure out, you know, what the weather might be like or to figure out, uh, you know, where will planets end up. There's this idea of uh, uh, that Stephen Wolfram, a creator of Mathematica, talks about a lot, which is computational irreducibility. And it's this idea that if you want to figure out what's going to happen at step 211, uh, you can't just have a single equation that tells you. You have to actually run that equation 210 times <laughs> to get there. And so you have to actually run a simulation. And you know, this could be as simple as a lot of simulations have no graphics. You might be simulating the, uh, uh, the population of fruit flies, right? That's a famous example. Mm -hmm. And you have each step in the simulation is a one-year cycle. Uh, and you say, this is how many of them die, and this is how many of them. Uh, you know, are born, you know, each year. And you have to run that equation again and again and again uh, to eventually get to, uh, you know, what it might be. And that, it turns out chaos theory is all, uh, is, a, is a science uh, that's kind of built around this idea of small changes uh, in input conditions can have vastly big outcomes. Yeah, uh, butterfly effect. Exactly, which is more popularly called the butterfly effect. But that's because... Uh, of this computational irreducibility. So sometimes we have to run the simulation to figure out what might happen or what all the possibilities are that might happen. And so, uh, you know, it could be that we're in a simulation where people want to see if uh, people, meaning people outside the simulation, want to see, you know, what will happen? Will we destroy ourselves? Will we destroy the planet? Mm -hmm. Will we become a spacefaring civilization? Um, in fact, uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, going back to his work, and I interviewed his wife, uh, Tessa B. Dick as part of my research for this book. And, you know, she told me that he believed we were in a computer-generated reality. And that uh, if you've heard of The Man in the High Castle, which is mm -hmm. a, a... Saw the first season of it yeah, on great, Amazon. Great show on Amazon mm -hmm. now. But it's based on his book from the 1960s, where the, the Nazis and the Japanese won World War II. So he actually said he remembered that timeline. So he believed there were beings that didn't like the outcome of that timeline. And mm. they rewound the simulation and then went forward where, you know, the allies won the war. And then, you know, he had many other little smaller examples of where he felt like things had been changed. And he said that he had been told this by beings that were from the future that were ru that were running the simulation. Mm -hmm. Were they really from the future? Was he crazy? Was he on drugs? There was lots of different speculation right. about this. But probably on drugs back then, right? I mean, not, <laughs> yeah. Although not, when I talked to his wife, she said, you know, he didn't really. People say that, but that's not that hmm. wasn't her experience at all. Okay. Uh, and and so uh, you know, I I think there's 
something there that, that our reality may be more complicated than we're thinking. Mm. Uh, but that would be another reason to run simulations. Is- that would have been his, that one specific timeline though, right? I mean, if we're thinking in terms of infinite timelines that they would have, they would have rewound the, the, the clock back to change the reality, but that would only still only follow one path. Right. And the question is, are the other paths, do they exist or not? Because back to our idea, uh, the, the quantum physics, many worlds uh, interpretation that are there all these parallel universes that have all these branches in them mm-hmm. or uh, there's a debate around this, or are those just probabilities that exist as information? And, and if it did happen, how would it work? Well, it turns out, if you want to clone something quickly, you know, that's like a computer process, right? If you want to do a biological process, you know, to clone a tree or to clone uh, a sheep, you still have to grow the cells. It's like a slow process, right? But in computer science, uh, usually there's a processor level command to just copy a bunch of information. Mm-hmm. And so if we were in a universe where we could branch out new parallel universes that are based on the existing universe with different choices, uh, that to me sounds a lot more like a computer generated reality. That would be the only practical way to accomplish it because you'd be constantly spinning off with each quantum decision, a new universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but perhaps a more uh, likely example is like when, when we design video games, you know, we, we lay out the possibilities in the future, but they're just probabilities. And then we go and we look at those and we figure out which one is the best for the AI to choose, like in a chess game or something. Right? And that one has a limitation though. There's a specific number of moves that can be done. It's not like it's infinite, like, the, right. you know. Right, there's, there's limited computing power. And then, you know, there's this question of free will and, and how infinite is it? Turns mm-hmm. out, you know, Stephen Hawking, before he died said, well, even if there's parallel universes, uh, there's still only a fixed set of particles and only so many configurations that you could put those into. Therefore, it's not really infinite number of worlds. Many of those worlds will be the same because Mm. the particle states will be the same. I mean, we're still talking very large numbers here, right? But but, but not necessarily infinity. Hmm. Uh, But but that's why I think, you know, a, uh, uh, a mathematical interpretation of that may be a more realistic option than an actual physical material you know there are infinite material physical universes being generated all the time yeah or maybe not even generated maybe just simultaneously existing all at once time from past and future you know throughout right and could we rewind and could we look at what happened there so this is another reason you know why i wrote the book is a couple years ago i was working with a startup here in cupertino uh, sliver.tv and they would actually record a video game play uh, from a 3d game like counter-strike global offensive where you know say you were shooting somebody and then they could replay that in virtual reality so you could put on a headset and feel like you were actually on the the field and you could see you know this guy shooting that guy you could see it from his perspective as well uh-huh. right huh. so even though it was a 3d world it was only rendered on a screen a 2d screen but now you could put on a virtual reality headset and you could actually be like in league of legends you could be on the battlefield and you could see you know the various fantasy creatures so uh, so don't get me wrong i i'm a gamer i've been a gamer for you know kind of all my life ever since they came out with atari and in television and all those right so i i would be down for jumping into a simulated reality just to just to experience it i don't know about forever though i mean you know right <laughs> you know I, well, I haven't figured that out yet but yeah, maybe you wouldn't want to be there forever, right? You'd want mm. to play it for a period of time. 
Uh, and then, you know, it gets back to the question of, are we here in this physical reality right. for a period of time? And then do we go somewhere else and do we come back again? So it gets to, you know, these fundamental questions about why we're here uh, and what this is all about. And certainly it seems like a physical reality to us. Uh, but, you know, if you go into Second Life, you know, I can create or Minecraft, right? I can create you know, some objects using the raw materials that are there, and then you can see those objects. So there's a persistence as long as the servers are still there serving right. that information and as long as that information is being rendered. Uh, and, and it's very possible that what we see around us are constructs that have been put there by previous players of the game. Huh. Um, <laughs> that would account for the fact that we have this shared multiplayer you know online role-playing game and as and that's in the, the pc version the npc version you know this could all be an illusion in the sense that we're there is no even graphically rendered world we're just information being processed on the server mm -hmm. uh, and you know this goes but this idea goes way back right it goes back to descartes who said what if there was an evil demon who was tricking me into thinking that I'm seeing the world around me. And I don't know if that's happening. The only thing I do know is I'm thinking these thoughts. Therefore I am right. <laughs> the whole rest of the universe could be, you know, some kind of uh, delusion uh, would be, I guess the term that, that he would use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the presence on the Cartesian, like the Cartesian plane. That's where that comes from, right? Essentially we are this manifestation of uh, a being in the that's physical right. reality. Yeah, and he had a series of dreams that kind of led him to, to you know, many of these conclusions. And it's pretty fascinating. I mean, we, we remember him for the, obviously the Cartesian coordinate system and as a mathematician, but I think these, these more philosophical ideas that he had, you know, were, were, were quite interesting. And then we're seeing them revisited now with updated technology. And, uh, you know, the idea of a simulated world or an illustrary world also goes all the way back to Plato. Mm -hmm. Plato had the allegory of the cave. Uh, right, right, right we were all chained to one side of a cave and there was a, an opening in the cave and we, there were people outside and things going on, but all we saw were shadows uh, of this and we took the shadows to be the real world. Mm -hmm. Well, what if somebody broke the chains and went outside? Well, first of all, he said he, his eyes might be blinded by the light <laughs> because he's not right. Sun. But then we came back and told the rest of us, they'd say, you're nuts. You know, this is reality here, mm. <laughs> which sounds a lot like what happens with pretty much any religious tradition and how it starts, right? Somebody peeked outside the cave and they said, this is what I saw. And then they right. a description for that. Uh, and at first people say they're crazy and then eventually it gets adopted into a set of rules and then that becomes the reality. Right. I mean, uh, I just pictured Jesus, right? And I mean, but, but that poor dude, man, he got himself killed for it basically, right? And <laughs> right, then they said, right. oh yeah, let's make it a religion. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah, it seems to be, you know, the, the origin. So that's why, you know, I, I think the simulation hypothesis describes that religions really well. Even in the Western mm. traditions, uh, you know, there's a, this idea that we are judged for our actions here. There's the here and the hereafter. Now, where's right. the hereafter? Well, it's not here. <laughs> and who's there? there, right? And who's there and who judges you? Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Islam, they have this idea of the recording angels who are writing down all your good deeds and your bad deeds. And it uh, turns out recording angels exist in Christianity and Judaism as well. Uh, although there they have the book of life. And in Islam, they have the scroll of deeds. And the idea is you're going to be shown after you die all of your deeds, but not just your deeds, you're going to be shown the impact of those deeds on other people. Right. The life well, that review. sounds a lot like it's, it's a life review, which many people who've had near-death experiences have, have talked about as a panoramic 3D recording 
and they can see and feel from the other person's point of view every action they ever took. Hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I sort of drew the connection when we were building this virtual reality uh, system to replay events and says, "Wow, that sounds a lot like what we're doing," uh, but in a metaphysical way. Well, hmm. that means somebody is recording what's going on now, just like you know, you and I are recording this this uh, podcast mm-hmm. or uh, on Twitch. You know, you'll see people streaming their games, and then you'll see them record it and save it and put it on YouTube later, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, you know, I don't think you need 14 billion recording angels, you know, to record all the good <laughs> deeds and bad deeds. You just need a algorithmic process that's recording things and a semi-smart AI that's determining whether those are good deeds or bad deeds. And right. Putting them all in the cloud server into the database you know. so that you can re-render them as necessary for the life of you down the road. You know, um, and, and, and I don't take necessarily, you know, any particular religious position here. I just say, if you look at all the religions, right? Right. Look at what they're saying in common. Uh, and then you look at what science is discovering and, and some of the things we cannot explain on the scientific side, that these things all make sense uh, under this guise or this model of a simulated computer generated reality using much more sophisticated computers than what we think of as computers today. Right. I mean, it seems to me the first step would be to hack it, to figure out how to hack that, you know? Right. And some people say, well, what are the cheat codes and, and how do right. I hack exactly. it? You know? uh, and that's an interesting question. And, and you know, there's been some, uh, there was a, there was a ha- famous hacker who's a creator of uh, this uh, self-driving car uh, called comma.ai. And he gave a talk at South by Southwest about, you know, we'd like to hack the simulation and start a church based on this idea right. of hacking out of the simulation. Uh, there was a, uh, Elon Musk was on a, uh, a show talking about self-driving cars and a MIT professor who does a podcast on AI. And at the end of the, the podcast, after they were talking about AI, uh, he, he asked Elon Musk, he said, well, what question would you ask if we were able to create AGI or artificial general intelligence, like a really smart AI? And, and his answer was, what's outside the simulation right? nah, <laughs> the that's a good one. that he'd want to ask. So maybe we're getting there. There was an article just recently about uh, groups of uh, scientists that have been trying to simulate the physical universe and using AI, they were able to predict properties that they never programmed into the simulation. And they don't know how it's exactly how it's picking up this information. About it's like a, what we don't know. We, we don't know what we don't know. It, and it's like they're, they're, the AI would just iterate over it and it would produce what we don't know all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would it would make inferences, and that's you know why there's a resurgence of AI. Is that mm. it used to be that AI was all about rule sets and algorithms and programming, and that wasn't working so well. But then you know there was a resurgence of AI with machine learning, which was all about data and letting the uh, uh, the AI figure out the relationships uh, mathematically without having to have rules that say if this then that, if this then that, because otherwise you have to have too many rules and there's always exceptions to the rules, Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, it's a matter of, of just letting the neurons perceive or the, the virtual neurons in this case, and then the tuning the whole network based on these weights. Uh, and some people think, you know, obviously that was based on the idea of neurons in the brain. Um, is that all there is to, to, to consciousness and perception or is there something else? And that, that's an open question in my mind. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a mystery, right? The, the depth of the mystery is, is just mind boggling. Almost as if we, there is no real answer or an answer maybe isn't what we're trying to come to, you know? Yeah. And then maybe there will always be, you know, more things. For just us. the question, maybe just uh, as a question, existence as a question mark. Yeah, exactly. And, and I find that, 
you know, uh, when I was back studying at MIT, you know, my professors would always say, well, what we have in science is not really uh, the truth. It's, it's a set of models about how the universe works. And if those models are useful, we use those to predict things and we use those to kind of understand how things work. And, uh, you know, just like Newtonian mechanics was a model and then they found that didn't really work at high speeds. So then a relativistic model came about and they found that didn't really seem to explain the behavior of subatomic particles. And then quantum physics came about as a model. And, you know, there are other models that people are suggesting, string theory, et cetera. But I find that the, the simulation hypothesis as a model that we live in information-based reality that's being rendered for each of us um, may end up coming closer to explaining these things than a lot of other models that are out there. And we'll see how that evolves over time. But it may take you know, a long time to figure that out. But the, the basic simulation argument, going back to Bostrom, was that if anyone ever gets to that point, then it's more likely we are already in a simulation than not. Right. And I'm saying we can get there in 100 years, maybe. Totally. And if we can get there in 100 years, it's very likely that someone has already gotten there. Uh, certainly with much more sophisticated computers than we have. Over the billions of years of existence in the universe, essentially, right? right? Many times over, many times over, the people could evolve to that level. That's right, yeah. And there could be in, you know, many different levels. And there are people who think that you know, there have been beings on the earth much longer than we think. <laughs> and so there's a lot of controversy around that. Mm. Uh, you know, have there been civilizations that have gotten destroyed and that we, we can no longer find any traces of because they're at the bottom of the ocean, which is probably the least explored area, you know, uh, yep. on earth, less even so than the moon <laughs> in mm -hmm. terms of like really mapping it out and, and really knowing what's down there. Uh, Graham Hancock comes to mind. Have you heard of that guy? Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Graham Hancock. And then there's the group, uh, uh, there was a BU uh, geologist, uh, Robert Schock, I think. Was mm -hmm. Robert Schock went to uh, the pyramids and saw the whole... Uh, the rainfall on the on the enclosure around the Sphinx, and it was like, well, that's hundred thousand years old at least. Right, exactly, much older than the archaeologists would say. But archaeologists are always pushing back timelines, even even for civilization in the Americas. Right, uh, I think the theory was that uh, humans came over on the Bering across the Bering Strait during the last ice age, and there were no people here before that. But you know, Graham Hancock's latest book, uh, I think, talks about. Uh, discoveries of archaeologists of things that were here that are much older than the last time frame of that that bridge. And then if you look at the DNA as well, you find that there's different groups that may have different ancestry than what they thought. And so anyway, this gets back to, we don't even know the full history of our planet. Right. Uh, but if it's a simulated world, who's to say that that's even a real right. history? Uh, I mean, one of the stages, the 10 stages I lay out in the book is this idea of false memories, right? And now we're getting back to Blade Runner and this idea, mm -hmm. that was, you know, Sean Young's character thought she was human and she told Harrison Ford's character, you know, about the spider when she was a little girl. And he said, those are all implanted memories, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can implant memories, uh, you can have, you know, any history you want. Uh, and even Stephen Hawking said that, you know, when he found that certain information was lost, and uh, out of black holes that determine determinism breaks down. And if determinism breaks down, you can't be sure of history. You can't be sure what actually happened. Mm. Uh, and so that's, it's all very possible that, that what we think of as history is uh, a part of a simulation and a timeline that was put out there for us to see how we would react to that timeline. Uh, it's tough to say. 
Yeah, lots of unanswered questions in general, right? And then we we get off the Zoom and we go into our worlds and interact with life and just go about like it's normal, even though it could be a totally simulated reality, you know. And right. and you know, in terms of numbers, it sounds like from your perspective, that's what it is. Yeah. Right, but you know, uh, would it make a difference? I guess is the question in our lives. And uh, you know, I for one would like to know if I'm in a video game, what are the rules of the game? What are the quests and achievements that I'm here for? But mm-hmm. probably the best advice: there's a MIT professor, a physicist named Max Tegmark, you know, who was on a panel and uh, he wrote a book called The Mathematical Universe. But he was on a panel and they were talking about simulation, and his advice was, well, you know, my advice is live an interesting life so that the simulators don't shut you down, right? <laughs> that may be the best advice of all. Right. That's a good one, I think. Okay. Well, I mean, in terms of, in terms of the simulation, I guess, uh, oh, you know what, what do you think about, what do you think about what's coming up in the future? I mean, I look at the decades coming up and it seems, man, artificial intelligence and this internet of things, and then the cryptocurrency potentially revolutionizing the banking system or economics and as we know it, right? I mean, what do you see? What are your what are your feelings on on the future? Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be an ever accelerating pace of this. You know, I'm a, a big fan of cryptocurrency and have been investing in it for a while mm-hmm. uh, through the boom and bust cycles. Uh, okay. and there are few. Like when I when I first started buying cryptocurrency, I used to go in downtown Mountain View and I would take out $100 from the Bank of America and I'd give it to a guy who would literally give me one Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, back then. And, and I think, you know, the technology has has a lot of promise in this idea of a decentralized world. Uh, but so, yeah, I think more and more things are becoming digital and, and that's going to be the trend. Uh, and that's digital money. And, and if you think about it, most of what we think of as money is digital already, even without cryptocurrency. It's just numbers in a database somewhere right. <laughs> that are being kept and that are being transferred back and forth. Uh, you know, between different, um, it used to be that gold was transferred between different countries physically. And they even stopped doing that. Even before they went off the gold standard, they would just kind of keep track of, okay, these are the bars in New York and we need to ship this man into Germany and we'll just put them over here on this side of the, uh, you know, the reserve. Right. Stopped doing the physical transfer long ago. But then it goes, oh, we lost a couple gold bricks along the way. What happened there? Right. Yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah. And then introduce blockchain and all of a sudden that problem seems to go away. Right. So you have a shared, a shared ledger that everybody can agree upon. I think that that has a lot of promise. Uh, but I think in the, in the decades ahead, you know, quantum computing will, will redefine how we think of uh, as, as, as computers. Uh, there was a, actually an article I wrote a couple of years ago for Hacker Noon. I think it was probably my, my uh, most popular post ever, that one in the simulation hypothesis, which was, it was how I cornered the Bitcoin mining market using a quantum computer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the idea was, you know, cryptocurrency is based on this idea of solving these mathematical problems. Uh, could you use a quantum computer to kind of solve the mining problem <laughs> or the hashing problem? Seems like you could. Eventually you could, but then there are quantum safe algorithms as well that, uh, you know, some other, I don't know if it'll be Bitcoin long-term, it may just end up being a different blockchain technology that uses different algorithms. Uh, But I think we're definitely headed in that direction. It used to be that any one government could shut it down. Um, In fact, the crash of 2013 or 2014 after the rise from like $100 to about $1,000 in Bitcoin and then there was a crash, you know, occurred primarily because China was cramping down. Uh, on cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. and then there was this whole Mt. Gox situation as well. So it was a series of things. But today, you you hear governments clamping down on cryptocurrency all the time, and it doesn't quite seem to to upset the markets the way it used to. And it's because 
there's a global market now. You've got Korea, you've got Japan. Uh, you know, you keep hearing like India, they're going to outlaw cryptocurrency and then they're not. And in Russia, they had outlawed it. And now Putin likes it and now he doesn't like it. It just goes back and forth. But, mm-hmm. but I think that's a, that's a pretty big trend. Okay. And what else? I mean, artificial intelligence. I mean, we're, it seems like we're advancing pretty fast at a breakneck, breakneck pace even. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, AI is, is, is going very fast. But I think there may need to be another wave of AI. Um, you know, like the first wave was this expert systems and algorithms, and then that kind of died out. We now have this wave that's been going on for the past decade or so, maybe less than that, maybe the past six years of machine learning, deep learning, data-based AI. Uh, but really, if you look at self-driving cars, for example, there's they use both data-based AI, but there's also heuristics that are involved as well. So it's mm-hmm. a combination of the two. I have a feeling that we'll probably hit a wall at some point. Uh, you never know that beforehand, right? I mean, if you go back to the 80s, everyone thought we were going to have, you know, AGI within a decade or two, and then it didn't happen, right? They thought we'd have a thinking computer very soon, uh, and same thing happens here. So it, it may flounder for a decade or two, but I think we're definitely on the path where we're going to have intelligent agents now that maybe they're not quite human, but they're, they're quite intelligent at performing specific tasks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that trend, I think, is irreversible at this point. Yikes. Uh, that will definitely happen where you have AI that's better at certain tasks than humans. Absolutely. But will we have human-like AGI? I think it'll, it will hit a wall. There'll be a decade or two of, of, of kind of a dip, and then there'll be a new set of techniques that are built on top of the existing techniques. Uh, and that's why I give you know, the 2100 to 2200 uh, dates uh, as the time when I think we'll, we'll have AI that could be fully realistic NPCs uh, on, on this uh, path to the simulation point. And how do, how, do, how do we make it that far? Because I would love to see that. That would be pretty great. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we've made it this far, right? <laughs> well, I guess we could download our consciousness into a simulation until right. we figure You're out right. a way yeah, to keep right. us... We'll still be here. Or life forever. different characters in the future. So it just... Right. Would matter. Yeah, I mean, it draws back to that whole idea of like, if we are in a simulated reality, then and I, that, that must mean that I stepped into it on purpose and that I, everything is going according to plan. So I should just sit tight and enjoy the ride, maybe. Uh, right. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you as a player, just like I can decide in, in World of Warcraft whether to kill this guy or to be his friend, you can still make choices uh, in, in the simulation. Uh, so it may not be that it's predetermined. It may be like in video games, we yeah. have paths that can be taken and choices that can be made, but it's not infinite choice, even though it might seem like it. Uh, maybe there are certain choices uh, and that determines what type of game. <laughs> That'd be a hell of a game if somebody could make that happen. Yeah, right. Definitely. It would be. <laughs> right on, Riz. Well, it was good talking to you. I, I very much enjoyed it. I don't know what time it is. So okay, yeah, it's, it's getting close. Really I need to, uh, yeah, I need to get going here. But yeah, this has been a great conversation. It's been a yeah. lot. Uh, I've enjoyed it myself. So uh, hopefully we can have you again, uh, you know, as the, I'll, I'll pay attention, check out your, all your articles on Hacker Noon and all that stuff. And yep, maybe we'll chit chat in the future. Yeah, sounds good. All right, Riz. Go for that. Okay, thanks. Take care. Yeah, you too. That was Riz Verk, author of The Simulation Hypothesis. In addition to being a contributing writer on Hacker Noon, he's a successful entrepreneur, angel investor, best-selling author, video game industry pioneer, and independent film producer. You can find him online at www.zenentrepreneur.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can find the Hacker Noon podcast at podcast.hackernoon.com and keep up with what's going on in the community at community.hackernoon.com. Until the next time, 
I'm Derek Bernard. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>